Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Vicki Harrison of Common Cause, who talks about the danger posed by right-wing groups working to convene an Article 5 constitutional convention that many believe endangers America's cherished rights and civil liberties. Alan Johnson of the group Christians for the Mountains, who discusses his work to end mountaintop removal coal mining and projects initiated to improve the quality of life for people living in Appalachia. And Alex Hahn, a veteran union and political organizer, recently hired as In These Times Magazine's new executive director, who considers the opportunities and challenges he sees ahead for U.S. progressive media outlets. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. More than 30 years ago in December 1992, U.S. soldiers were deployed to Somalia, where they quickly captured the capital city's airport. The American Forces mission was to feed thousands of starving Somalis and address chronic insecurity that had plagued the country for more than a year. The famine was ultimately stemmed, but what looms larger in most Americans' memory is the infamous October 1993 street battle, Black Hawk Down, that left 18 Americans and more than 300 Somalis dead. Forces under the command of Somali warlord Mohammed Farah Adid shot down two American helicopters and dragged the bodies of several fallen U.S. troops through the streets. Today, Somalia's weak government continues to battle the Islamist al-Shabaab militia group, whose insurgency was launched in 2006. Apart from the bloody conflict that's killed tens of thousands, the United Nations is warning of a new famine, where 1.8 million children are at risk of acute malnutrition and nearly half of Somalia's estimated 17 million people face acute food shortages without immediate help. The FBI's use of an informant to infiltrate a Black Lives Matter group in Denver, Colorado, during the wave of protests after the 2020 police killing of George Floyd has prompted concern in Congress that the federal agency is once again abusing its powers to spy on First Amendment-protected activity and harass and intimidate minority groups. Oregon's Democratic Senator Ron Wyden is calling for the FBI to explain how it came to recruit and pay $20,000 to a violent felon as an informant. That informant is alleged to have encouraged protesters to engage in violent demonstrations while trying to entrap them in criminal violations. Wyden has also sought disclosure of the rationale for Donald Trump's deployment of 750 federal officers to Portland, Oregon in 2020. Wyden claims it was based on a politicized and false intelligence report. These revelations were featured in the new Alphabet Boys podcast produced by the investigative journalist Trevor Aronson which drew on hours of undercover FBI recordings, along with internal FBI reports and interviews. Similar illegal abuses were committed in the 1960s 
during the FBI's infamous COINTELPRO domestic spying program, which targeted black activists, including the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and the Black Panther Party. As the American economy emerges from the COVID pandemic, where many employees vacated offices to work from home, an increasing number of white-collar workers favor a four-day work week with more flex time for family, child care, and elder care. The future of the four-day work week is looking brighter for white-collar workers owing to the results of a new major study released in February. Nearly 3,000 workers at over 60 organizations in Great Britain took part in a trial of reduced work hours, and the findings surpassed most expectations. A large majority of workers reported significant improvements in their quality of life, while more than 90% of employers who participated opted to continue the arrangement. As reported in Indies Times, Employers benefited by having a more motivated workforce with reduced staff turnover, improved productivity, and less frequent work-family conflicts. Participants in the study were predominantly white and well-educated, working in nonprofit and creative sectors. While white-collar workers take advantage of a four-day week, however, the study suggests there is a risk of greater inequality where many unskilled, low-paid workers won't have as many options to work fewer days. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manso. Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution lays out the process of how the Constitution can be amended, how new provisions can be added to the text. By design, the Constitution is not easy to amend. Only 27 amendments have been added to the Constitution since it was first adopted in 1788. The method that's been used to amend the Constitution thus far is for two-thirds of each House of Congress to vote for it, and then three-quarters of the states must ratify the amendment before it can be added to the Constitution. Another method to amend the Constitution that bypasses Congress provides for a constitutional convention to be convened if two-thirds, 34 of the nation's state legislatures, call for one. But other than requiring three-quarters of states to ratify any proposed amendment, there are no rules outlined in the Constitution for how such a convention should be conducted. Common cause warns that out of sight of the media, and most Americans, wealthy donors, corporations, and radical far-right actors are now pushing calls for an Article V conventions in states across the country in order to reshape our Constitution for their own benefit. Your reporter spoke with Vicki Harrison, director of Common Cause's Constitutional Convention and Protect Dissent Program, who talks about her work educating the public about the danger posed by groups working to convene an Article V constitutional convention that many believe poses a direct threat to America's cherished rights, civil liberties, and freedoms. The reason this is so concerning, Scott, is there are no rules whatsoever in Article V that detail how this process would work. 
Who would be involved? Who would be there? Do the courts have any role once it's been called? Does Congress have any role? Can you combine different ideas? And the really concerning thing is the last time we called a constitutional convention in 1787, they came together, they created rules a couple of weeks before, and then they promptly threw them all out and wrote our current constitution which is where they came up with, for example, that we need three-quarters of the states to ratify. Now, I will just say, Scott, a lot of folks feel like that's a pretty good safeguard. You know, okay, Vicki, they need 34 states to call it, but then they've got to get ratified by three-quarters. And my response to that, Scott, is there's nothing preventing them once they get to a constitutional convention from changing that. Tell us about the group's that are behind the movement across the country in various states to have state legislatures extend the idea of convening a constitutional convention. Well, it's your typical bad actors, the Koch Network, ALEC, Scott Walker, Rick Santorum, the Mecklers, big donors. So we've got the Balanced Budget Amendment, which is one campaign, and they are currently at 28 states. They have been pushing for this since the mid-70s. And a balanced budget amendment, Scott, to many people, sounds like a good idea. They think, well, I balance my checkbook. Unfortunately, governments and businesses don't work like our personal checkbooks. And I just think about how our country would have been crippled during the pandemic if we had a balanced budget. I mean, even businesses and far-right folks think that that would be a terrible idea. Then we've got the Convention of States, which is run by Mark Meckler, the guy who created the Tea Party. And he's trying to do three things with the Convention of States. And they're at 19 states right now. And he wants to have the fiscal constraint and he wants term limits. And he also wants a balanced budget. And he wants to rein in D.C. is what you hear a lot. But then what you also hear, Scott, is they literally put out in their literature, we want to get rid of the Department of Education, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Environment Department, get rid of the Affordable Care Act. They want to take the power away from the federal government. And it's quite hilarious to listen to some of the legislators proposing this in states where 60 to 80 percent of their budget for the state comes from the federal government. So how many states are you working in right now to prevent passage of an endorsement of a constitutional convention or rescind votes supporting such a convention that may have been voted on in the past? We're currently working in a few states. We're always trying to rescind old calls. And that's something that we start, even though we don't agree with what we're calling their wacky or fuzzy math, saying we're just going to create and count all these conventions together. We're getting rid of the old ones, and we've gotten rid of probably 10 of them since 2016. And currently working to stop not only, I mean, we're lucky because Idaho was another big target for them, and luckily Idaho's legislative session just ended. Um, But I'm still watching, um, gosh, Scott, at least 25 states with active bills moving right now. This effort depends on secrecy, does it not? Because 
Many of the groups pushing this idea of calling a constitutional convention want to operate below the radar. One thousand percent. And in fact, one of our partners, the Center for Media and Democracy, has started tracking because they haven't really the Convention of States campaign has not really spent money, uh, political money for state races or PACs or any of that. I mean, they maybe spent across the country, usually in a year, maybe a hundred thousand for the whole country. Well, last year they spent a million. 10 times. And the Center for Media and Democracy tracked that spending, and 95% of it is secret dark money, Scott. We can't track it past the fake pack that they set up from the fake foundation they set up the day after. It's just a web of money. And these are the same exact organizations that have been fighting every single voting rights bill in the country. Things like absentee voting. 20 years ago, everybody thought absentee voting was a great thing. So people who did, had mobility issues or were elderly, and now all of a sudden it's a partisan thing. But these are the same organizations that are fighting any sort of campaign finance reform, any sort of public financing or ethics reform or redistricting reform because they know they have gerrymandered so many states where people don't have a voice. That was Vicki Harrison, Director of Common Causes Constitutional Convention and Protect Dissent Program. Learn more about the dangers posed by right-wing groups calling for an Article 5 Constitutional Convention by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, in 2020 U.S. coal production fell to its lowest level since 1965. West Virginia produces the second most coal in the U.S. after Wyoming, much of it from a mining method called mountaintop removal. Mountaintop removal coal mining uses dynamite to literally blast the tops off mountains to get at the thin coal seams wedged between tons of rock. The process then dumps the resulting debris into streams, often burying them in rocks, trees, and soil. This mining method creates severe ecological damage, as well as public health impacts, where local residents breathe coal-dust-laden air and other toxic emissions. Although now used less often, mountaintop removal mining is still employed in West Virginia. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Alan Johnson, co-founder and coordinator of the group Christians for the Mountains which is working to stop this incredibly destructive mining practice and is taking positive steps to improve the quality of life for people living in the Appalachian region. Now, there's not as much thermal coal or steam coal, that is for power generation nationwide. Now, that's not true in West Virginia. 90% of the electric generation is fossil fuel. It's coal, really, and that's because of political maneuverings. But And also coal is used for uh, metallurgical purposes to make steel. And some of the best, they say the highest quality coking, uh, it's called coke, you know, making coke and then make the steel uh, is in uh, a mountaintop removal seams. So it is going on. It has moved on as far as the major environmental communities that going on to other things like fracking and gas and pipelines and so forth like that. And so it's, it's underreported again. Larry Gibson was one of the leaders of the fight to stop mountaintop removal. He had a place on top of Kayford Mountain, 
where groups of students and others like me drove up an almost impossibly steep, narrow, and rutted dirt road to get there. And he would educate us about the damage mountaintop removal does and the fight to stop it. And we could look over from the top of the mountain where he was onto a horrible mountaintop removal site. Sadly, he died in 2012. But please talk about a new campaign you're involved in regarding his home. Caper Mountain, where Larry Gibson was, that is um, a place that uh, is starting to deteriorate. We had a, a gathering last July, and out of that, we are going to try to save it. We're going to try to um, establish Larry Gibson's house. will be a, a eventually an education learning center, which may be a generation-long project. So we have to not just be against stuff, but we have to somehow find ways to start rebuilding Appalachia, which really needs rebuilt. So we're doing some uh, positive rebuilding to um, bring hope again into uh, some of these uh, struggling areas of Appalachia. So there is uh, legislation um, efforts to try to not only stop mountaintop removal, but to try to find alternative employment. We know that if green energy alone would bring in much employment, if we can get the state officials to uh, get behind it instead of still trying to ride on the coal horse. I'll give an example. The Public Service Commission, uh, there's three people on it. They 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 deal with the power plants, electric rate, power rates, you know, that and so forth. They also deal with telephone and all that. There's three of them appointed by the governor. Governor Jim Justice is a coal baron, a very polluting coal baron, who you see is avoid is able to chisel down the fines to uh, a dime on the dollar or something, uh, as well as safety violations. So you got that. He appoints three people. One of them is. Uh, a former coal lobbyist. Bill Rainey was the former head of the West Virginia Coal Association. And the third person is kind of quiet. So what they're doing is they're keeping these old aging power plants, which are ready ready to retire. And they're asking them to put huge amounts of money, of course, on the ratepayers, pay for it to uh, uh, rehab them and, and keep them going so they can keep burning coal. And so the electric rates of West Virginia, which were, uh, say, 20 years ago among the lowest in the nation, are now really above the national average. Coal is not as cost-effective as gas, and gas is not as cost-effective as new um, solar. Uh, so, But they, they just want to keep pimping for coal, you know. And if people's rates are going up, you'd think they might be a little upset about that. The general population, do you think they understand why their rates are going up and they could be better if they were using renewables? I don't, I don't think they understand enough. Uh, the media, some of the media will report it and a lot of the media won't. And and then the other thing is West Virginia has a high rate of ownership of homes, but a lot of the homes are not very um, well insulated. They're small or poor, a uh, step or two above a shack, you know. So energy efficiency and insulating and more efficient heating systems would help a lot and would reduce the need for electricity. There's there's a, a number of issues that need to be, that could help. I mean, a lot of people are paying $200 or more a month and, and it's hard for low-income people. Uh, heating with electricity is considered to be a good thing if the electricity is being sourced through um, renewables. That was Alan Johnson, co-founder and coordinator of the group Christians for the Mountains. Learn more about the campaign to end mountaintop removal coal mining by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
James Weinstein, founder and publisher of the independent progressive publication In These Times magazine, got his start editing the scholarly journal Studies on the Left in the early 1960s. The author and historian later moved to San Francisco, where he published the journal Socialist Revolution, later renamed Socialist Review. Weinstein then moved to Chicago in the mid-1970s, and along with other journalists, launched in these times in 1976 to report on movements on the American left. As expressed in his editorials, Weinstein rejected sectarian politics and advocated that progressive groups work for economic justice, corporate accountability, and human rights within the Democratic Party. Over the past 47 years, In These Times has operated on revenue received from reader subscriptions and contributions from progressive activists across the U.S. The magazine's list of founding sponsors included Julian Bond, Noam Chomsky, Barbara Ehrenreich, Daniel Ellsberg, and Michael Harrington. In These Times, which remains a home for practical broad-based progressive politics, just hired a new executive director, Alex Hahn, a veteran union organizer who served as the Midwest political director with Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign. Your reporter spoke with Hahn about the vision he brings to In These Times and the current and future opportunities and challenges he sees for U.S. progressive media outlets. I think one of the challenges we really have uh, in the labor movement, in movements for social and economic justice, is uh, a problem of not having a progressive media that's big enough to really be able to communicate to people what's happening on the ground. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Chicago mostly, uh, but in different places around the country as well, developing you know, what I think of as movement politics, um, really thinking about how labor unions, uh, community organizations, social movements can work together um, to develop politics that actually advances those fights for justice. Alex, I wanted you to maybe just talk a little bit about the uh, challenges and opportunities you see, not only for in these times, but progressive media in general, given that I think it's only fair to say there is a crisis in U.S. journalism today with hundreds of local and some national news outlets having gone out of business. There are extreme challenges with the old advertising revenue model. It doesn't work much anymore in the age of the Internet. And you have all these hedge funds buying big newspapers and then looting them, basically. A lot of challenges out there, but I'm sure you, you see some opportunities as well when our, our politics is it's so chaotic at this moment with a Republican Party that has been taken over in large part by fascist thinking. We have every couple of years, uh, corporate media uh, tries to reinvent itself. Um, they pivot to video. Uh, they focus on audio. Uh, there's, you know, rounds of layoffs and consolidations really um, every three to five years. Uh, and we've seen that really shrink things that used to be really public kind of town hall. I don't want to be kind of think of any real golden age of American media. Um, we're just in a different place and position. But right now, corporate media is in a really weak position. And I think that we have to think about it on the left, on the progressive left, as a real opportunity 
not to create media that can simply sharpen our points of view, but to have media and progressive media that can actually start to take the place of that corporate mainstream media. I think that means thinking really creatively about new new ways of communicating, thinking about kind of social media, the different ways that people are accessing news and information, and really taking advantage of um, a hole that's being left there by corporate media. We can see the right taking advantage of these opportunities. We have a different project than the right wing does. Uh, we're actually trying to create something and create democracy, so it's a little bit more challenging. As our politics gets kind of stranger and stranger, we continue to see you know, majorities of people supporting the kind of issue agenda, supporting universal health care, supporting you know, housing rights, supporting worker rights and union at a higher uh, rate than they have in decades. Uh, and so I think it's incumbent on us to figure out how do we fill some of that hole that's been left by corporate media consolidation. Alex, I wondered if you thought labor, big labor unions with some funding available, uh, should play a more important role in progressive media and really amplifying workers' points of view on a whole host of issues that are not represented today, by and large, in our corporate media. Yeah, I do think there's a rich history in the labor movement of supporting um, independent media that uh, advances uh, worker issues. So I think that there's a role for labor to play. I think it's also important to remember that even with the uptick of labor organizing over the last few years, uh, that unions are, are still... Uh, continuing to be challenged in how they grow. Um, and unions still today represent something like 11% of the American workforce. Um, I actually think that we can see and you know some real possibilities in you know the way that over the last few years, uh, political fundraising, um, in a lot of ways, political spending has evened out um, on the, you know, more broadly uh, between Democrat and Republican candidates. We've seen campaigns like uh, Bernie Sanders' two campaigns, for instance, that have raised enormous amounts of resources, um, really dependent on very small donations from a, gi from a giant amount of people. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying that that is something that's directly replicable, um, but I do think that we can think of models of funding uh, media that's going to be independent. We'll never be in a position, you know, the, the right wing has it easy. Um, if you have 10 uh, billionaires and their primary goal is to expand their own wealth and protect their own wealth, um, that's a, that's a, a much simpler project um, than the task of millions of people trying to build a real representative democracy. Um, but we have to figure out how we engage those millions of people uh, in supporting media in the ways that they can. That was Alex Hahn in These Times Magazine's new executive director. Find a link to the publication's website as well as discussion on the current and future challenges for independent progressive media by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website 
at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WOZO in Knoxville, Tennessee, WHYR in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Global Community Radio Nationwide, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.